Now, did you notice tonight, and not just for kids, that, that one of the smallest bodies up here had one of the most profound theological statements? Don't underestimate your children's ability to pick up theological truth. In fact, at least in my limited experience, because I didn't parent everybody's kids, my kids tended to be in those early years, like between like even two and a half, but maybe three to six to seven, more theologically tuned in than they were when they got a little bit older and a little more distracted. So, pump them full of truth and, and see to it that they can say things back to you like, God is good and we are not, okay? Um, so that that truth really resonates in their hearts. Well, last time we were looking at Samuel, he was a child and then a young man, and we saw that the call of God came to him as a child, and then God caused him to grow and, and through him, God sent his word to the people of Israel, and it made a huge difference. We pick up our study uh, tonight with chapter 7, 1 Samuel 7, and we read these words, verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 7. And the men of Kiriath Jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jearim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, if you just start reading there like we just did, you're going like, what is going on? I mean, the last time we were in the, the tabernacle and God was calling out to Samuel and he's going, here I am, here I am, here I am, here I am, over and over. And now we're talking about this city I can't even pronounce. And, you know, what, what's going on? Well, I think it's important for us to know the historical context. And actually, the last time that, that, we, that we saw Samuel, God had established him as a prophet of the word of the Lord. In 1 Samuel 4 and verse 1, which we didn't look at, we looked at chapter 3, notes that the word of Samuel came to all Israel. And that was the last time his name showed up until we reached chapter 7. In between, God teaches the Philistines and God teaches Israel that you don't treat God and you don't treat the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle like some kind of good luck charm. In chapter 4, Israel took the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines thinking it would guarantee victory. I don't know if they had seen Raiders of the Lost Ark or not, but the whole idea that somehow by carrying that Ark it was going to cause a victory uh, they had that in their head. Instead, they lost miserably. And the wicked sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they were killed, and the ark was captured. And on hearing the news of the capture of the ark, uh, aged Eli fell backwards, broke his neck, and died. At the same time, his daughter-in-law gave birth to a son that she named Ichabod. The glory is departed just before she herself died. 
So what you see is a picture of total disaster. And if you were wondering why God was letting Hophni and Phinehas get away with the way they were living, just know this, they weren't getting away with anything. There are people right now that you'll go, how, how come God just doesn't strike them dead? I mean, keep a wide berth. Look out for the lightning. Don't worry. God, the judge of all the universe, is going to deal with them. He will do it his way in his time. And he dealt with Hophni and Phinehas, and he dealt with the Israelites who were not close to God at all, but thought they could use God like a good luck charm. Well, in chapters 5 and 6, the Philistines learn not to trifle with God or his ark. They put the ark in the house of their idol, Dagon, the fish god. Dagon kept falling during the night. I've fallen and I can't get up. Um, and, and when he fell, he would fall apart. Like the last time he fell, his, his head was chopped off, his hands are chopped off, there's just the trunk of the body. So the Philistine says, well, this isn't working out well for Dagon, so I've got to protect Dagon from the real living God. So they moved the ark to another town, and they kept moving it from town to town, because everywhere the ark went, there were plagues that fell upon the people that were living there. And finally, they sent the ark back to Israel, along with a gift of golden tumors, I can't imagine what those look like, and mice as a guilt offering. They, it, it was, they had learned, you don't, you don't mess with the God of Israel, and you don't treat the ark of God in a way that it doesn't deserve. So, when the ark crossed the borders into Israel, some of the men of the town there, the town was called Beth Shemesh, they inspected the contents of the ark. I mean, this is the famous ark of the covenant. I wonder what's inside. Um, and they were struck dead for their unholy treatment of the ark, contrary to God's instructions in the law of Moses. So, they sent it on to Kiriath-Jearim, a little over seven miles from Jerusalem, and there it stayed until King David moved it years later. And you remember what happened then. At first, he tried to move it on a cart, and the oxen stumbled, and the cart started to tip, and Uzzah reached out his hand, and Uzzah was struck dead. So, it wasn't that the, that the ark was magic in and of itself. It's, it's that it symbolized the presence of God with his people. It, it showed that the mercy seat, um, that we come into God's presence only with the shed blood of the sacrifice that makes it possible to meet with God. Well, all of these events that happened over chapters 4, 5, and 6 had profound effect on Israel, and that's why we read in verse 2 at the end of the verse, all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. I mean, this got their attention. Sometimes we wonder, why do all these bad things happen? Well, one of the things that God does when bad things happen is He gets our attention, and He, he teaches us about ourselves, and He teaches us about Him. They had the ark of God now, but they knew they were not right with the God of the ark. And that sets up the scene that happens in 1 Samuel 7, where you see a return to Yahweh, a return to the Lord. So, first thing that we see in verses 3 and 4 is what genuine repentance looks like. Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord and to repent, 
In fact, the Old Testament word for repent means return. It means you're going one direction and you do a 180 and go the other direction. Okay? In the New Testament, the word refers to a, a change of heart, a, a change of the way you're thinking. And so, so it's deep. It's right down at this position of heart. The Old Testament word refers to that 180-degree reversal. So if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So during this period of time, remember, the Philistines had conquered them in battle. They had taken the ark, and, and the ark's going back and forth, but the Philistines are still a major threat for Israel. So what do you see the components here of genuine repentance? Well, there's a returning to the Lord with all your heart, putting away the foreign gods. It turns out they were the Baals. Baal means Lord, Bangal. And, and usually each town had its own Baal. But Baal was like the god of, of fertility, the storm god, the god who brought rain, the, the god who brought um, crops. And then Ashtaroth was the female side of that. And, and she was connected with fertility in your family. You want to have lots of kids to work the crops. Okay, So Put away those foreign gods, put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. So we read verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. So let's, let's think about, when we think about the chap, intervening chapters, and we think about what Samuel uh, commands here, let's think about genuine repentance. First, genuine repentance does not use God like a good luck charm while you keep on living in sin. It's not like you just want this like magic protection from God. Okay? That's 1 Samuel 4. In 1 Samuel 5, we learn that genuine repentance does not just add God to your collection of idols. You can't put uh, God right alongside Dagon. In chapter 6, genuine repentance doesn't treat God in common ways. You have to treat God in ways consistent with his commands and with his holiness. And then we learn in 1 Samuel 7, genuine repentance is from the heart. So it's not just walking an aisle. It's not just raising your hand. It's not just saying some words. It's not just even being sad. It's, it's that it's coming all the way from your heart to the point that you're willing to tear down every idol in order to worship God alone. Genuine repentance tears down every idol to worship God alone. And this is what bothers people about Christianity, about serving uh, the, the true and living God, Old Testament and New, is, is they don't get to add him to their collection of idols. They don't, they don't get to just have him there to, to, to get them out of hell in the last moment. They actually are called to love him and serve him and to serve him alone, not everything else in addition to him. The Baals and the Ashtaroth, had powerful hold on this whole region. I mean, think about it. If you think that you've got to worship Baal and Ashtaroth so that you succeed with your crops, it was an agricultural society, so that you can become wealthy, so that you have food to eat, so that you have big houses, so that you have lots of lands. If you think you've got to worship those false deities in order to have big families, and then you connect that to indulging in immoral pleasure that God forbids, 
you've got a powerful combination. Oh, you mean I, I get to indulge in all this plus have all this blessing? It's the same gods that are worshipped today. I mean, think about it. Money, power, sex. Same as the Canaanite gods, and that's what drives people today. William Cooper writes, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. Genuine repentance calls you and me not just to, to get happy in Jesus, but to get rid, get rid of the things that we know are contrary to God's law, get rid of the idols, get, get rid of the other things we kind of keep on the side. And God calls us to do this, and if you're born again by His Spirit, you can serve God alone. The second thing that we see in this uh, revival under Samuel is intercessory prayer. In verse 5, then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah. Mizpah was kind of on a, an area where you could look out over, it was more on a hill where you could look out uh, over the region, not far from where he set up shop in Ramah. He drew water and poured it out. They gathered at Mizpah. They drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. So what's going on here? Well, Samuel prayed for Israel, and they poured out water. It was a symbol of their desperate condition. It's like pouring out your heart like water, like you're, you're totally um, without any help unless God gives it. You're, you're poured out like water. They fasted. So getting right with God, even more important than food, and they confessed that they had sinned against the Lord. Sometimes we think of sin as just, well, I just didn't keep the rules. We don't think about the personal nature of it, that when we sin, we're sinning against the Lord. It's a, there's a relational aspect to sin. In fact, just, just for a quick review, remember that, that God's law, God's moral law, is not just, okay, this is right and this is wrong, and make sure you keep the rules. Remember that when you do wrong, you also do harm. You're going to harm yourself, you're going to harm others. But also when you do wrong, you're sinning against God. It's an affront to God. There's a relational thing that happens. So whenever we sin, we actually are doing harm to ourselves, to others, and we are showing dishonor to God at the same time. And we tend to, you know, sin is, you know, does a fish know he's wet, okay? We're, sin is so natural to us that, that we tend to minimize it. Well, nobody's perfect, you know. Hey, nobody's perfect. We're all sinners. We're sinners by birth and by choice. I heard pastors say that a million times. You know, nobody's perfect. Well, remember, sin is not only wrong. Sin does harm, and sin dishonors God. It's very personal with God. They had sinned against the Lord. And then we're told that, and Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. He said, wait a minute, I thought he was already judging. This isn't talking about his, like, passing judgment on them. Okay, you're in trouble now. You go to jail for the next 30 years. You're executed. Uh, or, or, and he's not even carrying out the governmental functions of, of, of judgment here. In context, it's talking about his establishing justice again. They've been away from the Lord and now they're getting right with God. 
There's a righteousness going on, a right relationship between Israel and God, a right relationship among themselves. And, but prayer was, is absolutely critical to what happens here. Prayer makes total sense when no one but God can rescue you, when you're poured out like water. Prayer calls on God to have mercy and to do what only God can do. It's not like you're telling God what to do. It's that you're recognizing that only God can do what needs to be done, and you are are deliberately, um, vocally, verbally, you're putting it into God's hands. You're saying, God, we're poured out like water. If you don't intervene, we're in big trouble. We need you. And, And prayer has a place in those that are revived and those that are repenting before the Lord. Well, immediately, verses 7 through 9, there's a hostile threat. We read verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. I mean, they're gathering together. They must be getting ready to wage warfare, right? And Because they're thinking purely in secular terms. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease, don't stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he will save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. It's not uncommon for the enemy to take note and go on the attack whenever God's people or even an individual believer gets right with God. You see this commonly with those who've just come to know Christ. They're brand new believers. Get ready for it for the next four Sundays or so at least. The car is going to break down. The kids are going to get sick. Everything to try to cause it to abort what's going on uh, with this person coming to God. And you've seen this in your life. You you know, God deals with you, and you finally get right with God, and then it seems like everything breaks, and everything goes wrong, and you say, wait a minute, you know, what's, what's going on? I thought when I got right with God, everything would get easy. Well, that's not always the case. When you get right with God, there's an enemy on the field, and he's going to do what he can do to discourage you. This is not the time to think that it's no use to serve God. In fact, one of the best things that you can do is say, you know what? That's right. There's an enemy of God on the field, and he doesn't like it that I'm getting right with God. That actually helps you in the battle to stay true to God. That's the time to lean harder in your trust in God. The burnt offering symbolized complete consecration to God. So they're they're saying, God, we belong completely to you. And and think about it. They say, cry out... uh, that, that the Lord will save us from the hand of the Philistines. If, if they could do it for themselves, they wouldn't need God to save them. That's why Jesus Christ is the Savior. Call his name Yahweh saves, for he shall save his people from their sins. Why does he have to save them from their sins? Because they can't save themselves from their sins. You can't save yourself from your sin. You can't, you can't turn over a new leaf. You can't be disciplined enough. God has got to rescue you. Um, we need a Savior. And this is what's so humbling. People think that religion is about, you know, really getting good at being good. And then you're better than everybody else. 
That's not religion. That, I mean, that's religion, but that's not Christianity. That's not biblical religion. Rather, it's about recognizing how, how desperately you need God to intervene for you, how you need him. I remember when, um, when Matthew, our, our oldest boy, um, when he had, he had got, he got saved about, uh, oh, between four and six, you have back and forth in there. And, um, and so one of the reasons that he came to Christ is he struggled with doing right. He was learning that when he did wrong, there was judgment. He does wrong, there's judgment. If he's wrong, there's judgment, okay? And, and he was learning also about mercy. We had a lot of gospel conversations. I mean, at age three and four, a lot of gospel conversations. And, um, after his little brother came along uh, is when he actually you know, trusted in Christ, but God, God was working on him. Well, it, I guess it was probably several months after he had trusted in Christ, and we saw, we saw an immediate change in his disposition, the way he just, in the way he obeyed, and the, just his whole attitude. Not that he was perfect by any means. In fact, that was the problem. He, he, we were talking one day, and he says, Dad, you know, I got saved, but I still, I'm still having problems sinning. Like, how come I'm still sinning? I thought I was going to get saved from my sin. Okay. The, the reality is that, that we still have to lean on God, that, that we still need God even after we've trusted in Him. Um, it, it's really, we don't like being at wit's end corner when we don't know what to do, when we're poured out like water. But it's in those times when we realize just how desperately we need God to intervene for us. This hostile threat um, led to this praying even more. And then we read in verses 10 through 14 about the divine victory that God sent. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. So here they're having a worship service, having a church service, you know. And, and the army's gathering around them to destroy them while they're worshiping the Lord. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Car. So God won the victory, and then Israel was able to, to mop up. I mean, any of you that play sports, you see this happen. You ever been going along, and it's like, it's very evenly matched team, and there's one's that way and one's that way, and you know whether it's football or soccer or whatever, and and at some point there's like a breaking point where one team starts to lose ground, and and it so it so gets in their head, it's like they can't do anything right anymore, and the whole game shifts. Okay, well that's kind of what happened here. I mean when you've got mighty warriors, they think they've got, you know, they've got Israel in a box, they're just going to wipe them out, and then suddenly they're thrown into confusion. Then fear takes over, and they start running, and they're no longer um, the battle-hardened men that they were. They're just easy picking, and that's what Israel did. We, we're told after this, verse 12, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and called its name. I want the kids to tell me what the name was. Say it loud. I can't hear you. Ebenezer. Yes, Ebenezer. Ebenezer. Eben, stone, Ezer, help. Stone of help. 
And before he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So, the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. That's in the days of Samuel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities of the Philistines had taken from Israel, were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites and other people that were a threat to them. So you have this divine victory. There's no way to explain it, but that God intervened. They, they, they took care of their relationship with God, and God went to battle for them. Well, in verses 15 to 17, we see ongoing ministry. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life and went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all of these places. So he's, he's making this circuit. Bethel's in the, in the north, and then Mizpah's where uh, these events had happened. You have Gilgal. He judged Israel in all these places, and then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. Now, you read those verses, and you go, well, wow, that's not nearly as exciting. It's not as dramatic as the victory over the Philistines, but these years are necessary, and these years are important. Maintenance of our walk with God is necessary and important to preserving the blessing of having repented and gotten right with God. There will be extraordinary breakthroughs in our history. And in between, there must be regular, ongoing, faithful patterns of walking with God. We all love the mountaintop experiences. We love the big breakthroughs. But most of your life, you're going to live in between. You're going to live in between. So you need these faithful patterns, time in the Word and in prayer. Look, if you're not in the Word, you can't survive. If you're not praying, you must think that you're self-sufficient. Because remember, this all happened because of reliance on God. Assembling with God's people for instruction and worship. I can guarantee you this, and I don't care what the reason is. You drop out of gathering with God's people, and you will deteriorate spiritually. You will. You will. Now, sometimes it's absolutely impossible, like you're a shut-in, you're in prison, you're, you know, there's some where you are, you are prevented, and, but today there are ways to still keep connection. But, but if we're talking about just the normal things that people drop out for, oh, well, you know, we need some family time, so we're going to go on Sunday. Oh, well, you know, um, we want my kids to play sports because someday they're going to be famous athletes. Um, or, you know, all kinds of excuses for, for not assembling with God's people for instruction and worship. But the book of Hebrews that talks about, you know, really keeping the faith and, and persevering says you, you can't. You can't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as a manner of some is. You'll, you'll end up drifting. We want to be faithful in looking out for those in need. We want to be faithful in keeping connection with our brothers and sisters in Christ and encouraging them and confronting one another, praying for one another. Taking care of the body isn't just for birthdays, graduations, and weddings. 
There's a lot of living in between those high points. And by God's help, you've reached this point. Wherever you are, if you're in a good place with God, it's by God's help. And so you want to keep the connection. You want to keep serving Him. So this passage just gives us great insight into what uh, real revival looks like, what turning to the Lord looks like. It's the kind of thing that, that would be marvelous to see in our own times, among our own people. I think God seems to pour it out in, in, among certain churches and certain locales. Um, it's been a long time since we've seen it go broadly. But this is what it would look like if it actually happened. It would look like genuine repentance where we throw out the idols. It wouldn't look like caving in to whatever is the common way of thinking today. It would look like intercessory prayer. It would mean there would be hostility, there would be pushback of some sort, but it would also mean divine victory, and it would produce ongoing ministry. If you think about it, the Ivy League schools, they, they were, in our country, they were founded initially to, to train preachers. They were, they were founded on the heels of revival. A lot of the blessings we enjoy in our country were the result of God's intervening on our behalf. So let's pray that uh, God will do it again. We're going to be singing uh, together, O Great God of Highest Heaven. It has a similar theme to what we see in this, this passage. And we're going to pray. John Lehman's going to come and pray after that so he can give you a few instructions and also pray for your um, imbibing of all that ice cream that it d- doesn't kill you tonight. Um, no, that, you, that we have a great fellowship together. Uh, he's going to pray for that after we sing and then dismiss you and then just head straight on down uh, there. Make sure you pick up your kids. Parents, don't just go eat all your ice cream and leave your kids. Um, make sure you pick up your kids if you need to do that and, and get on down there. So let's sing together, O oh Great God.